Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're broadcasting from the GPO in Dublin on this World Post Day as we look at the history of a building forever associated with the 1916 Rising and the struggle for independence. And we'll be finding out about its place in Irish history. You can email us your thoughts and views to talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we took our second look at the Civil War and we investigated some of the worst atrocities of that conflict and if you want to listen back to that show or to any of our older shows just go to the news talk app powered by go loud our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts tonight's episode of talking history is brought to you from the gpo in dublin in conjunction with the dublin festival of history and we've put together a brilliant panel of experts over the next hour to discuss the history of this iconic building i'm delighted to be joined by stephen ferguson the museum curator of the gpo and company archivist and the author of gpo staff in dublin as well as by dr sinead mccool an irish historian author broadcaster and exhibition curator whose books include easter widows about the widows of the men executed in the 1916 Rising. And Sinead has done brilliant work on the Manoa 100 exhibition, which runs until next year. Well, you're both very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be joined by Dr. Mary Muldowney, historian in residence for Dublin City Council for Dublin Central, whose books include the edited collection, They Didn't Go Away, Women After the 1916 Rising, and Cathy Scuffle, historian in residence for Dublin City Council for Dublin South Central and the South East area. And they'll be joining us shortly. But Stephen, we might begin with you. And I might begin maybe just going straight into 1916, because although there's 200 years of history associated with this building, I suppose when we think of the GPO in Irish history, we're drawn straight away uh, to the events of 1916. I think that's right, Patrick. The, the building, of course, goes back to 1814. And the history of the Postal Service in terms of communications is something that affected the the country much more than maybe just the one week of 1916. But for most people, I think the, the iconic facade of the GPO, when they see that, immediately conjures up images of 1916, of the fighting, of the destruction of the building afterwards, and the consequences for Ireland. So I, I agree. I, I think that's, that's what strikes a chord with most people in this country. And it's incredible, Stephen, to think that it still attracts so many people every day who are drawn to it, not because they're getting their stamps or collecting uh, something from the post office. It's because they want to see where all of this history happened. They, they do. And they, they come into the, the public office here and they look around the space that we have in the front of the building. And you can see people sort of stopping and staring and dreaming a little bit, um, just trying to imagine what happened. And they see the statue of Cucullin in the front window, put there, of course, some years after 1916 and 1935 to commemorate the rising. And they look at that and they, they symbolize in their minds what went on. Uh, they think of Cucullin, they think of heroism and sacrifice and idealism. 
And then they probably compare it a little bit with what the reality of Ireland is today as well. Sinead, why do you think it has such an iconic place in Irish history? Is it because 1916 and the Rising itself has such a, a special place in, in, in Irish hearts because even though it was a failure, it kick-started a new revolutionary struggle that did lead to independence? Well, that's a long lead-in. When I was thinking about the, the building, I always think that a lot of people say that the, the proclamation, um, it was read from the steps of the GPO. And of course, there are no steps and there were no steps. And I think that's partly because of people's sort of association with the building as being this impressive place that you must be rising up to it. So uh, as the center of the rising, I suppose it's one that we always talk about. Sometimes you, you hear, you know, we talk about it as the GPO because maybe in a, the central idea of it being the place where the rising happened, maybe the general post office doesn't even have the same ring to it. But in the same way that the, that the leaders, you know, chose it as the place, as their headquarters. It's right in the, in the center of the main street of the capital. And so I suppose it was a big meeting place always. In the time pre-mobile phones, the, the thing when you'd come from the country would be to meet outside the GPO when you'd um, be making rendezvous and making a connection. So I think it's, it's, it's really well known as a building for that reason also. Um, and then of course, yes, yes in terms of, of it being here, I suppose when we think about famous people being in a place, all at one place, the idea that James Connolly, um, Michael Collins was here, you know, Joseph Plunkett, um, you know, uh, the Pierce brothers were here. And so, so you have that sense that they, they were all here at one point in history and the ghosts, as you describe, seem to remain somewhere here in the building. And Sinead, do you think it was foolish taking the GPO? Was there a, a mistaken belief that uh, such a prestigious building wouldn't be shelled or, or was it a fact that they just did didn't mind or didn't care? I suppose when we look at accounts, the idea being that the rising was going to last for a period of time, and in some accounts they were hoping that they were going to be able to hold out for, for months. The whole concept and idea was that the whole country would rise up with them, and that, that, that was confused over orders and um, counter-orders and you know people not, not joining in, as we know, and so it made mainly Dublin-centric. But, but I, I suppose the, 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 the selection of this building was for the status. They say that James Connolly thought that the, the British wouldn't um, bomb or attack their, their main buildings in, 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 the, in the capital. But I suppose when we look at it now with the, with the benefit of hindsight, we know what happened next and we know that it didn't go according to plan. Um, but at that moment, it was a centre, um, as Stephen has so eloquently expressed it, it's like a centre of communications. And in time when the postal service was so central, it was, it was a, a, you know, a communication centre. And it was just down the road that the um, Reese Chambers had the wireless schools. So there were quite a lot of ancillary buildings within um, the O'Connell Street area that they used as outposts. So it, it was, it was main, mainly to be the, the hub or the centre of that rising. Stephen, you mentioned the terrible destruction. How badly damaged was the building? Because nothing was able to be done in it for a few years afterwards while it was rebuilt. So how, it seems that the, the destruction was quite extensive. Yeah, it, it, was, it was very badly damaged. And if you look at photographs, the photographs taken from the top of Nelson's column, for instance, you're looking down on the shell of a building with the roof entirely gone. So what stands are the, the walls of the structure itself, but everything in between is gone. And you see there were, there were pictures taken by a, a GPO staff member shortly after the rising, and he captures things like a, a radiator precariously balanced on one of the internal second floor walls so that 
all of this was destroyed. And when the boss of the GPO, uh, who was um, um, Hamilton, Norway, when he came back with his wife to search through the rubble, and she found a couple of little brooches that her son had given her that had been kept in her husband's safe, but she recalled just seeing what she thought were, were blocks of chalk, and these, in fact, were GPO ledgers which had been uh, burnt in situ, and they just crumbled to dust as she touched them. So the, the place was left vacant for, for many years, obviously for good reasons, because of all the other things that were going on in Ireland at the time, but eventually the decision was taken to rebuild it and put the post office back in the GPO. And Stephen, it had been an important telecommunications hub. The, the telegraph had, had run from uh, the GPO. So I suppose re-establishing it as an important uh, postal communications hub, I think, was a significant decision. And it was rebuilt and it was extended. It, it was. And uh, I think the, the importance of the building really in 1916 was precisely because of its role as a communications centre. No, not on the postal side, but as the centre of uh, telegrams and the telegraph service. And that's why it was taken as a strategic centre in 1916. But when the building was reopened uh, formally in 1929, a, a new telegraph office was built on the top floor, and of course, radio came in as well. And uh, that, that was on the top floor as well. And Sinead, you are doing some fascinating work on 2RN and on that early radio uh, uh, station. So tell us about that and the decision to, uh, to locate that here. Yeah, as Stephen says, that it was it was palatial rooms that they, what they said that they were building up on the top floor there for the artists and the the, the people that were were here. And so one of the things that they had in Turin would have had a resident, um, you know, orchestra, which is interesting. It's made up of women, and it was um, it was run by a lady called Miss Terry O'Connor. And one of the soloists was Kitty O'Doherty, whose mother had been out. Kitty O'Doherty also um, called after her her mother, who had been out in 1960. People may know the book that was written by Kevin O'Doherty called My Parents and Other Rebels, which talks about the, 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 the story of that particular family. And so one of the things that we know about that early radio station, it had started in 1926 um, and had had buildings elsewhere in, um, on, and then was moved here in 1928 um, when uh, the, the building was, was made available before the official opening, but in 1928. And um, one week in, in March, it just gives a sense of the programs that are on to our end. So there's a children's corner that starts off every day, then followed by gramophone records. And one of the interesting things is every day there was another language being taught. So you, there, was, there was French, there was Spanish, there was Italian, there was German, and of course there were Irish on several days. And one of the things that they had also where they had a, a lot of new drama that was, was played, and there was one particular day where they had in, in March of 1928 when the Cats Away, the Mice Will Play, which was a farce by um, Gertrude Quinn and company. So one of the things that I found really interesting was that I've been chasing at the moment several women. Uh, you know, my thing is, is biography, and uh, I'm chasing a couple of the women who are rejected for their pension records because they're not considered to have gone the usual route in that. And one of those women is Patricia Hoey. So I would have absolutely loved to have been able to come into this building in 1928. Um, she gave a talk no idea of what the talk is, no recording surviving, but uh, she was famous enough and well-known enough in 1928 to have her own show, and she would be, for people who might know the name, she was one of Collins's head of his spy network, and he's, her home in Mespel Road, 5 Mespel Road, was his intelligence office. 
so even more connections with the GPO and the, <laughs> and the independent struggle. So how long then, Sinead, did this remain a, and continue to be a, a, a communications hub in terms of radio? It continued right on until the formation of RTE and moving out to, um, to, the, to Donnybrook, where it is still today. I mean, at the outset in 1928, they, were, they had an advisory board, which is sort of interesting as well, which was to give a various class of listener. But in 1928, they would have had 27,000 license holders. It was, uh, you know, so it built up over time. There's an interesting thing that Stephen Gwynne wrote at the time, again in 1928, about the radio. He said that people in the western uh, seaboard were now going to be abandoning their newspaper. They had um, a greater preference for the radio. And anyone who's familiar with, with local radio stations will know that, it's, that the radio had such a place in the heart of Irish people. Okay, Stephen, let's go even further back in time then. Let's go back to the Napoleonic Wars and the, and the creation of the GPO and its building. It's fascinating to think about what the building was like back in, in the 19th century because it had some very different functions as well because some of the staff lived on the grounds. They, they did, yeah. I mean, the, the, building, the building was opened in 1818 and for people thinking about it today, it, it was... It was a much narrower building than it is today. Today, the GPO stretches a very long way back. But in the early 19th century, it was home to several post office staff who had apartments up on the top floor. And they were there because they were obviously in charge of dispatching and receiving mail. Because where we're sitting here today was the mail coach yard of the GPO. So coaches came in on the Princess Street side and went out on the Henry Street side. And there had to be staff here to uh, look after mail, to hand out the guns that went on mail coaches uh, to, for protection throughout the, the journeys that they went on. And the, the boss of the post office at the time, who, who was a man called Sir Edward Lees, he had his own extensive suite of apartments and a, a separate door at the front of the GPO where he went in. And his, his apartments were on the Princess Street side of the building. And he um, had very nicely furnished apartments, but the, the architect of the GPO, who was Francis Johnson, he had a rather delicate task because the housekeeper of the GPO, who had rooms in the basement, um, herself and the boss became quite friendly. And the architect was asked, after he had drawn up his initial plans, to move this lady, Mrs. Draper, from the basement upstairs next door to where Sir Edward had his apartment. Um, so he, he had to accomplish this. Both people were married, but there didn't seem to have been any difficulty. And uh, Mrs. Draper's husband, uh, we are told, was um, an unassuming man not given to petty jealousies. And he was fixed up with a nice little job collecting the mail from the mailboats, and nothing more was said. So there are some Downton Abbey-style <laughs> shenanigans going on yeah. in the building as well. Uh, and was there much of that then in terms of these interpersonal relationships and scandals, given that it was a place of work, but it was also a, a place where people lived? Well, it, it, there, were, there were different sorts of things that happened. The, most of the ordinary clerks had very small rooms. Uh, the boss had a, had a nice suite, but there was one man, he had 10 children, so that there was a nursery built into the accommodation for him and his family on the Henry Street side of the building. And accommodation remained up until the middle of the 19th century when uh, pressure on space meant that for operational reasons, uh, the building needed to accommodate uh, the post office savings bank, later on the telegraph service, and then later on telephones, so that as business developed throughout the 19th century, the building had to accommodate new types of business and fit them in so that 
apart from one, uh, one man who was caretaker, he remained. And in fact, he's interesting because his daughter was married from the GPO, the only person I knew who was married from here, and she went across to St. Thomas's Church and was married across the road. So it was a memorable day for her and the GPO as well. One thing that has really struck me when looking at the history of the GPO and, and the wonderful work that you've done is that it always seems to have been evolving as a building. It never seemed to have uh, stayed still because throughout the 19th century it was expanding. It, uh, you had a savings bank, the telegraph, the parcels, all these new businesses. And you see that then again in the 20th century where you have, uh, well, 2RN, you, you also have this constant expansion all the way up to having this kind of museum that we're now today that it never seemed to stop developing. No, I, I, think, I think that's, that's a good point. It's, it's, it's a building that changes and evolves with the times that we live in. And in the early 20th century, business again was expanding a lot. And what happened was that on the Henry Street side, new buildings were taken over and adapted for post office use. And of course, the building had only just opened one month uh, before April 1916. And the press had commented on the beautiful new office, the beautiful fittings, wonderful accommodation for the staff. But it only lasted a month before it was all destroyed. But to bring us up to date, the museum, the Witness History Exhibition Center, where we are now, that was a, a new project that we brought in just before 2016. And many people here worked extremely hard with help from many experts outside to produce what is our current Witness History exhibition. And the aim of that and its title, Witness History, was to, to leave to the visitor any interpretation of 1916. It wasn't that we wanted to prescribe any particular view, but we wanted to put forward evidence for good things, evidence for bad things that happened in 1916, and let people interpret themselves as they went around the exhibition. And Stephen, I wonder how did the staff here in the GPO react when uh, it was taken over and commandeered on, on Easter week? That Were there some who were in sympathy with the rebels and then others who were absolutely horrified and, and disgusted by what was happening? Yeah, I, I think you've, you've, put your, you've put your finger on it exactly. Um, the staff at the time, there was maybe 17,000 people, worked for the post office throughout the whole country. And as civil servants, they were encouraged not to get too closely involved in any politics. And while they could have their political opinions, their primary duty was as civil servants to the post office, and that's what was expected of them. Mostly, they would have been people, I think, who were, well, probably put out by what was happening. I mean, like most of the people in Dublin at the time, they weren't in favor of the rising, and they saw carnage and destruction around them and the destruction of their own place. But the GPO itself, um, because it was a telecommunications hub, you could have had people sitting down at their coffee break, one of whom might have been very sympathetic to the ideals of the rebels, and the other completely the opposite. So they, they had their bit of lunch together, and then one of them, um, at the start of the rising would go out and cut the telegraph lines around the city and his colleague across the table spent the rest of Easter week going around splicing them together again. So it, 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 um, it highlights just um, how, how close our connections are with each other, how we think we can know people and yet at a deep level maybe you don't know what's going on in their mind at all. 
And I wonder, Stephen, how were they able to then communicate the news of the outbreak of the rising uh, to the administration, the British administration back in London, given that the GPO was under rebel control? Yeah, well, what, what happened, again, if you look at the original documents, which are, are held in the London Postal Archive, um, there are on file there copies of the actual telegrams that were sent from Dublin on Easter Monday, 1916, so that the staff who were on the second floor of this building where the telegraph office was, they were permanently on duty because the place never closed. They suddenly noticed that their telegram lines had gone what they called dis or disconnected. They checked the batteries in the basement of the GPO, found that they were okay, and then just about that time they began to hear breaking glass. They looked out the window and they saw that the rebels were entering the building, but they were quite slow to come upstairs. And the doors were barricaded by the staff against the people coming up the stairs. There was a, a small army guard on duty, but the soldiers had no ammunition for their guns because somebody had decided that it was a little bit dangerous. So while they barricaded themselves, they could prevent no effective opposition. And the staff were evicted but the engineers went down to Amiens Street, where there was a telegraph office, and they connected with London to inform them what had happened. Sinead, going back to the proclamation, and you, know, you mentioned that the, the mythology around the steps of the GPO. Uh, America, the United States, has its Declaration of Independence. For us, I suppose it is that 1916 proclamation, and it's become such a, an inspiring and inspirational set of words, but also a rallying cry for later generations. You often see it quoted, very often misquoted. And does that, does that attachment, that association with the GPO add to the interest in this building as well? The fact that it was here that Patrick Pierce went out and read the proclamation and that, that adds an extra layer to the story. No, absolutely. And I think that the, you know, even the fact that Pierce wrote the war news, the, you know, he, he had volume one, number one, but the idea was, the story is, is that, um, that Catherine Clark tells that Sarah McMahon came into the building and so that, that uh, he, Pierce was pacing and they didn't know, and they, somebody said, get that man a desk and, a, and get him something, you know, to, to write, and, and that's from Tom Clark. And so the, so the idea that he put together this news sheet that was printed locally and then was distributed, and so there's this whole, you know, the story mostly women who were currying and coming in and out of the building during that time so the whole idea of writing and creating this this documentary evidence around the rising is something particularly we associate with with Pierce and I, I think that that document was important because it was a, a proclamation for a provisional government of the Irish Republic and we know that particularly now that we're now in the centenary of the Civil War was that again it's this this time this rallying cry the um they they say that when they were in the burning buildings in the Hammond um, Hotel across the road that that that, that um, Moira Comerford is one of the people who kept, was quoting um, pieces of the proclamation back to um, Madeleine French Mullen and Dr. Kathleen Lynn used their own money to make miniature versions of the of the proclamation to, to hand out and that was very important to them in 1918 when women were getting the vote because it had been addressed to Irish men and Irish women and it had actually talked about equality within the document and we know that the term cherish all the children equally has been used and used again um, and then there was the famous um, organization the first one for single parents that used cherish as their name 
name in, in the, uh, because it had been included in, in the proclamation. And there's something we always associate with the, with the GPO even today is protests. So there's protests outside the, the, you know, the GPO and, and in, in a time in the past you know, when there was you know, newspapers being sold that could not be got in other places that were illegal, they were being sold outside the GPO. So, so you, know, you have that sort of center of it being um, a place where information is, is distributed as well as you say as buying stamps. And Sinead, even though there were other battle sites and other rebel-held uh, territories like say Boland's Mills and so on uh, during the Rising, they never, they never became part of the iconography in the same way as the GPO. And in later years when people would lie about having been part involved in 1916, it was always that they were in the GPO. And mm -hmm. so the numbers, they always joked in later years that if everyone who later claimed to have been in the GPO had been there, it would have filled, you know, as a Croke Park, you know, 10 times over or something that it was always though the GPO that people were pretending to have been in, uh, because that was what had caught the popular imagination. Yeah, and even if you think about something like the, the Walter Paget print that was produced, so he had been an illustrator for newspapers and he m produced uh, the idea of the burning GPO and the, the colony um, already wounded, you know, being administered by a nurse. So they had created the, not only the, the sort of the stories around it, but they'd also created the, the illustrations. And, and um, one of the ways in which the people who had been in the GPO made sure that people knew that they had been there was they organized a picture at Crow Park um, in the 1930s, I think. But to be able to have a photographic record of the who's who who were in the GPO. So you couldn't necessarily sit beside someone and have your official photograph taken because all the other people around you would say you weren't there. And, and so, so that's why they, they, they did that photograph. Excellent. A way of, of proving who was there and who was only bluffing. Well, my thanks to my guests. We're going to be joined by more experts uh, after the break as we discuss the place of the iconic GPO building in the history of Ireland. This is part of the Dublin Festival of History, a special edition of Talking History broadcast from the GPO. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back with more Talking History, more on the history of the GPO right after this. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History and a special edition of Talking History uh, to mark World Post Day, but more importantly, as part of the Dublin Festival of History. And this has been organised in conjunction with them as we look at the history of the iconic building, the GPO, and its place in Irish history over more than 200 years. And my thanks to everyone who has put together uh, this special broadcast. Shufra Donovan from News Talk, uh, Maisie Lynch of Alice Pior, Angus Laverty of On Post, Aileen Fitzgerald of the GPO and Kira Tracy, uh, who works with digital at News Talk. And also my thanks to my uh, audience because uh, some uh, regular listeners to the show contacted us and joined us today. So very grateful to them for joining us. Uh, also my thanks to my panel of experts for brilliantly bringing to life the history of the GPO, Stephen Ferguson, the museum creator of the GPO and the author of GPO Staff in 1916, and Dr. Sinead McCool, uh, brilliant historian, author, broadcaster and curator who's done some great work with many exhibitions including Manaw 100 which runs until next year and right now I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Mary Muldowney, historian in residence for Dublin City Council for Dublin Central and her books include the edited collection They Didn't Go Away, Women After the 1916 Rising. Mary, you're very welcome. 
Thank you, Patrick. So talk to me about the GPO and its role in terms of government control in Ireland, because it seems to have been quite central to that story. I think it was, and I think you have to go back to the the 19th century. And uh, it was, you have to remember that we were part of the empire at that stage. So a post office was an incredibly important part for the communications for the empire. It wasn't just keeping control between London and Dublin, for instance. And... I've always been uh, intrigued by the staff who were working here because uh, when I realised that many of them actually lived in the building through the earlier years of its incarnation, it put a whole different perspective on it. You know, that it was a way of life for a lot of people, um, including, as Stephen was talking about, the the nursery, which was a new one to me. But um, the post office itself as an organization, was actually a part of the government. You know, so um, up to when we got independence and replaced it with our own uh, postmaster general, the postmaster general in London would have been making sure that uh, the operation was efficient, but also that it was done within the rules that govern civil servants. In, uh, for the whole of the UK, the United Kingdom. So that they would get the same rights, I suppose, then as... I think civil- they were more concerned about obeying the rules rather than their rights because they didn't have many. <laughs> that, um, whatever about the very senior people, uh, clerks and others who were doing the bulk of the work, uh, it wasn't a terribly well-paid job, but of course it had status because it was permanent and pensionable, and you were a civil servant, so you had to be a particular kind of person to get that sort of job. But also, I mean, for a lot of the later years of the 19th century, I gather there was a fair amount of corruption in terms of sort of preferential treatment for friends of friends. So Mrs. Draper's husband wouldn't have been an unusual case. Talk to us about the Cú Cullen statue, because Cú Cullen is an iconic figure in Irish mythology. I think the statue captures him in that great moment of, of death where mortally wounded, he's tied to the standing stone so he can continue to face his enemies. Yeah. It's associated with 1916, it's associated with this building, but of course it predates it. It does, of course. Uh, Oliver Shepard, the sculptor, created it in 1914 as part of the Gaelic revival, much more than as a, a monument because thankfully you know it had been a while since anybody had actually died for Ireland just at that point but it's a magnificent statue I must say it's one of my favorite things about the city and I think de Valera when they got into power in 32 and he really wanted to equate Fianna Fáil with the whole 1916 rising especially but the struggle for independence and to some extent, I mean, I I would think he appropriated it because it wasn't what Shepard intended, but at the same time, it is a very appropriate kind of monument because it conveys, as you say, the bravery of somebody who went on fighting and Cúcullen, you know, it's also, I'm not sure it was intended at the time, but um, it was taken and has been since by uh, Northern Unionists because, of course, Cúcullen was defending the men of Ulster, you know, Uh, So that's something maybe de Valera didn't concentrate on so much. And what about the vision that was there for 
well, O'Connell Street, or as it was known before, Sackville Street, because mm. we've mentioned Francis Johnston, and there definitely seems to be a kind of an architectural or design vision for uh, how the street would look and some of the iconic monuments. Well, yeah, because, I mean, the bulk of Sackville Street that became O'Connell Street would have been formed in the late 18th century, where, and there was an idea of having this very elegant boulevard and Johnson was perfect because he would design in a classical mode, as we know, without steps. Uh, but the thing was that, you know, these fabulous pillars out of the front and then facing up to the Nelson Monument and the whole street was of a piece, you know, that it's a bit sad to see what was allowed to happen in the 20th century, you know, and that kind of tacky, really, compared to what it would have looked like. And um, a lot of it at the early stages was pedestrianized. So it was, you know, like so many major boulevards in cities throughout Europe, it was somewhere where probably the middle classes and the well-off could parade at especially at the weekends. But, um, you know, it was, it was a unified vision, so it was very elegant. And shop fronts, all of the design was of a piece. Now, I know Johnson wasn't responsible for all of it, but certainly the GPO, as in that incarnation, was just perfect for fitting into that classical facade. And Stephen, that is a criticism that you that you sometimes hear the managed decline or the unmanaged decline of O'Connell Street that that perhaps uh, it's given its its prominence in Irish history and and the events of 1916 and beyond that perhaps uh, that should be taken into account when when planning is made. Yes, I I, I think that's true. I mean, there there were plans in the early 20s, as you know, under Abercrombie's plan to try and. Um, present a unified facade for the upper end of O'Connell Street, certainly. And some, some of the buildings, if you look at them today, some of, the, some of the bank buildings are quite impressive. How long we're going to have banks in O'Connell Street is another matter. But there, there were attempts to keep it to a, a good standard of architectural splendor. And I think during, during the 60s and 70s and subsequently, things went downhill quite a lot. And Personally, I, I, I always regret, I remember when I was small being brought into the city centre and asking my mother if we could go up Nelson's Pillar, but it was never the right occasion, and I never got up to the top of Nelson's Pillar, unfortunately. And the spire, for all its technical achievements, it, it really doesn't do anything, and I don't think it fits in, certainly, with the GPO. And the other, the other end of O'Connell Street certainly is a little bit a little bit gloomy and grim, particularly at night. Mm -hmm. So perhaps for planning in the future, we should try and reinstate uh, a certain element of style, uh, a certain uniformity of style to the, to the, uh, the upper end of O'Connell Street, leading up to the Rotunda, where, of course, the GPO was based for a little while after the 1916 rising. The sorting office was at the back of the Rotunda. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the post office can claim uh, several buildings throughout O'Connell Street that were post office buildings during the 20th century. Wonderful, because Sinead, you would know from the, the wonderful exhibitions that you've created that, you know, the venue, the site is, is so important as well. And that uh, if O'Connell Street was made more, uh, more attractive to people to come, then uh, uh, you would see even increased interest because in a way the GPO should be almost your starting point for a tour of 1916 or the revolutionary period. 
Well, I suppose what's happened over the period of time um, in recent years has been the idea of parades you know, on O'Connell Street and the fact that, that, they, that they've had that wonderful parade in, in 2016 on that magical day, it was, uh, it was beautifully sunny. And, and I think that, that um, we were very fortunate that the street lent itself to that sort of t pageantry and people see it very much, you'll see it in, in recorded in terms of St. Patrick's Day Parade and the way that we project ourselves to the world. And I know that there's been, you know, greenings that have happened and including the GPO. So I, I suppose what we have to look to as in the, the next generation, and we've always spoken about this, is, is that it, as long as history is on the curriculum, as long as, as children are being brought here, you know, on school tours and that, they're the, they're the planners of the future. So um, one of my favorite um, memories, I suppose, of, of, of 2016, I don't know if anyone else will remember, it was on the front of one of the newspapers, I think it was the Irish Times, a teacher brought his class into the GPO, he dressed them up and they, he brought them in on the, on the Lewis. And then they had to come into the GPO and they were photographed. So they had already got their photo op in place. And, uh, and they were photographed coming in and they were, they were primary school children. And I just thought, what a memory, you know? What a, uh, so, so you always look to the future that as long as you're telling the story properly, as long as you're investing in, in, in it. And, and I suppose you, there's been a lot of talk about the end of the post. And now there's been such a boom in parcels. So once again, there's that element of surprise and, and anticipation of the post. Uh, and uh, so I suppose when, when I was you know, young and first coming to Dublin, my memory was of coming in here and, 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 and having the sort of feeling that I, that I was the privilege of buying my stamps in this, in, the, in this wonderful building. And I suppose it's a lot to do with how you feel about your city, your country, and your history in terms of how you respond to a building. So I'm absolutely delighted that there is a, an exhibition here. And if I can say that um, I, I, I think I still survive. I, I think I'm downstairs in one of the, uh, so I'm part of the museum exhibit, so that's even funnier. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I suppose it's a wonderful building and I'm very fond of it anyway. Mary, a great part of your job as a historian in residence is that you get to meet so many people. You get to mm -hmm. uh, talk to them about our stories, their stories, to, to reflect on our different histories. And I wonder how they respond to the, the histories that are here in the GPO. Well, to be honest, it's not something I've discussed with people formally, but I would be aware that there is this great resonance in the hearts of most Dubliners, you know, especially my generation. I grew up going to school from the north side to the south side, so I passed here every morning in my dad's car and uh, actually had the shock one morning of coming along and discovered that somebody had blown up Nelson. Uh, so, uh, you know, I do have long memories of seeing this building and being very aware of what it meant. And the 1966 commemorations, again, at the risk of dating myself terribly. Um, I do remember doing painting competitions and everything where we had to reproduce our vision. And uh, my whole class in school would have done this. And I met people recently that had been to school with me and they still remember that. And the pride in trying to reproduce the story. We also, one of our classmates was the grandson of the Arahali. So we owned it. 
<laughs> and I, I think that is probably true of everybody who is older here. I'm not so sure that it resonates in the same way with younger people, but I haven't explored that. But, you know, having brought my own granddaughters in here and we've looked at Cúchulain and it was simply that it is such a poignant statue and so clearly displayed bravery after combat. You know, generally um, in... 2016, we hadn't actually started as historians in residence that came the following year, but the, I do remember that day as well, Sinead, and it was absolutely amazing, not for the fact that the sun was shining on O'Connell Street, not always to be guaranteed, but the numbers of people who came out, and it was the people's history that was being remembered. And, you know, they're constantly doing exhibitions and other things. And then, you know, in the role of historian in residence, um, we will help people when they're looking for funding for various projects. And a lot of them would focus around the revolutionary period for obvious reasons. But there is a great respect for the signatories of the proclamation and the numbers of times, you know, when you're discussing something that might be difficult. I've just given a lecture on prostitution around the turn of the 20th century in Dublin and the association with nationalists, but um, not that they were prostitutes, but they were condemning it. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the discussion there was in terms of the proclamation, again, being quoted as the exemplar for how we should be living. So it really was, it, it, it comes up in the strangest of circumstances sometimes. Well, we're talking history on News Talk, and tonight we're talking about the place of the GPO in Irish history. It's in conjunction with the Dublin Festival of History. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be talking about the aftermath of 1916, the GPO today, and lots more besides. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History, a special edition from the GPO in Dublin in conjunction with the Dublin Festival of History as we explore the history of this iconic building. A brilliant panel of experts, Stephen Ferguson, Dr Sinead McCool, Dr Mary Muldowney, and now delighted to be joined by Cathy Scuffle, historian in residence for Dublin City Council for Dublin South Central and the South East areas. Cathy, very welcome. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. You've done some fascinating work on the post boxes and how they were repainted afterwards and that's of course a major part of this communication story as well. Absolutely and if ever a country was trying to get its identity in order it was doing it a hundred years ago. Uh, just before the civil war breaks out uh, we're building, we were in the free state and now we're heading for Patrick's Day and two days before the big celebration, uh, the first celebration of St. Patrick's Day with our new identity people started to notice that the pillar boxes, the post boxes around Dublin were turning green. They had been red, had all the royal insignia on them from the various uh, kings and queens that we had before, Queen Victoria, Edward VII, whatever. But suddenly they started turning green. They turned the 40 shades of green, basically, because we hadn't got a decision on the colour green we were running with. And it seemed to be a case that whoever had a pot of paint that was green available, that was going to be used to paint the pillar boxes. So it was very much a lead up to Patrick's Day, 
1922, we're making a big statement, and it was one of the first major, if you like, identity things that took place. We didn't take the royal insignias off, we just painted over them, but it was the colour change that was very important. And of course, that was one of the criticisms then of the new state afterwards, that there was only a lick of paint that it had changed the colour, but it hadn't actually changed the reality. You know, the no, rest was underneath. It, it certainly hadn't. You know, the first one to go green was quite interesting because the previous January, people had gathered in that little courtyard just off Dame Street, which led into Dublin Castle. Where that entranceway is, all the Dubliners gathered. And they had seen in the January there was something going on in the castle. And the first indication was that the barbed wire was being cut and the sandbags were being removed. Things were that bad. So they were being removed. And then from the heavens, a really grey January day, something white started falling down on top of people. They assumed initially it was snow, but it wasn't. It was ash because documents were being burnt in braziers in the castle yard as the British made their way out of the city. If you were in that location then in March and had turned around, you would have seen the first post box that was painted green in the city. I think it's quite significant that that's the one they chose to paint first because it's that location where the big changes that happened the previous January. Excellent. And we've talked about the rebuilding of the GPO after all that terrible destruction. Mm. But you've done some very interesting work on, on how it was rebuilt and the bricks that were used for the rebuilding. Absolutely. And we're in this wonderful room here in the GPO Museum. And if you were to look out the window, you will see the yellow and these slightly grey and black bricks that form part of the whole rebuilding of this building. And they're my little bit of South Central sitting right here in the GPO. Every one of them are a Dolphin's Barn brick made on the Crumlin Road in Dublin, made by local people from Dolphin's Barn and the village of Crumlin and rural Drimna, as it would have been at the time. Everyone handmade, a lot of women employed in the brickworks as well as the men. And this was one of the big contracts that kept the brickworks open in the early days of the Irish Free State. So every time I look at these buildings, I know they're a little bit of my South Central, my little bit of Dolphin's Barn, Dolphin's Barn bricks sitting there and looking resplendent, I must say, and they're part of the rebuilding of the GPO. Stephen, I've been getting my kids into Lego and they've had great fun building various different things. And uh, back for the centenary of of the rising, uh, there was a wonderful Lego reconstruction of this building. Yes, people... People took to various sorts of projects for 2016, various artistic projects, and Lego was one where we had a a very good um, model of the GPO made out of Lego. And we we have a nice model in the museum here, but this this one was very appealing with lots of little coloured Lego bricks. And the other thing that was was done a little bit after that was a a group of people, I think all women uh, in Cork, knitted a model of the GPO they had to support us a little bit with a certain amount of uh, knitting needles and sticks and things. But it, it was a very clever representation of the GPO as well. So it's a building that inspires all sorts of creativity in people today as well. Now, we do have a studio audience here for a small select group of some of our listeners who contacted us when they heard we were doing the show in the GPO. And one of them has a wonderful connection, a family connection to the events of Easter week. Uh, Emmanuel Sweeney? That's correct, Emmanuel 
Sweeney. My granduncles were on the roof of the GPO. When it went on fire, they had to get down. They were with uh, Patrick Pierce, was the immediate commander. They're on the roll of honour in Kilmainham in the Countess Markovich room. Uh, their actions are fully documented in the uh, National Military Archives. But uh, the, the uh, question I might mention is that when Stephen mentioned about the telegrams from Easter week being in the London Postal Archives, I'm just wondering, could we make a little request that they'd be returned to, to Dublin? More importantly, if I could make this point about documents and historical documents, I recently spent some time doing research in the Liverpool Maritime Museum, and I've seen documents there that are extremely pertinent to our history. And I'm just wondering, is there any commission which could be established to request documents that are very important for our own history and that they'd be better in Ireland than elsewhere? It would yeah, be very Sinead, important. Sinead, it's hard to know. I think almost with documents now, the move is towards digitising them and that way you can democratise them and that everyone can look at them no matter where you are. And I think that's the future, yes, of it. Yeah, okay. yeah, of course. So Stephen, uh, brilliant to hear these accounts and it's a way that almost everyone has some connection or some story or uh, a connection when they read about the figures from the past. And Stephen, I wonder when you reflect on the GPO now and its place in Irish history, what do you think, do you think, where do you think it is positioned? Well, I, I think its place, it's secure in terms of Irish history and its role in 1916. I'm a little less certain about its particular role in the continuing business of communications, for instance. And uh, earlier in the year, I was giving some talks to UCD students who were, who had been given the project of looking at the GPO and wondering what could be done with it in terms of reusing or revitalizing this building, maybe in terms of environmental plans and schemes. So it was very interesting to talk to um, a group of enthusiastic young people who came up with lots of ideas for what might be used in the GPO. You might have an, an artist studio in it. There was um, somebody who thought it might be turned into a library which would maintain a communications link or even a recycling center. So it, it's a big building. It has still a lot of people in it, but the whole COVID working relationships, all these things have changed and I, I'm, a little, I'm a little anxious about the future of the building from a post office point of view, but it's certainly secure from an Irish history point of view. Okay, well I think that's a wonderful note on which to end our discussion. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts for bringing the history of this building to life and it's a show that has been produced in conjunction with the Dublin Festival of History which is ongoing. My thanks to Stephen Ferguson, the museum creator of the GPO, the author of the GPO staff in 1916, Dr Sinead McCool, wonderful historian, author, broadcaster and exhibition curator, Dr Mary Muldowney, historian in residence for Dublin Centre and Cathy Scuffle, historian in residence for Dublin South Central and the South East areas. My thanks also to everyone for putting together today's show. Uh, Shifra Donovan from News Talk, Maisie Lynch of Alice Pior, Angus Lafferty of Unpust, Aileen Fitzgerald of the GPO and Kira Tracy of Digital at News Talk. And of course, my producer, Marisa Sullivan and Paul Bullard on sound. My thanks also to our studio audience for joining us at the GPO. And as I say, to everyone who made tonight's show possible. We'll be back with more debates and discussions next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.